Well, as we come now to the Bible, let me invite you. Well, I'm going to invite you to stand, actually, if, uh, if you will. And we do this. Uh, you'll find the Bible passage, by the way, uh, right there in your, in your worship folder. And it's Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We, we often ask people to, st- not always, sometimes ask, you know, stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a way of honoring what we're about to do and honoring uh, the Scriptures together, of course. Um, but the reason why particularly I want to do that this morning, if you look at this um, verse that we'll be studying, th- there are a number of images, and some of them are in the original, and we'll be pulling out those images so that we can see them together, I trust. Um, there are a number of pictures in this verse that are very powerful, um, that are not quite on the surface, but are really there, and we're going to pull them out for us as we look at the uh, passage and study it and see um, the imagery that's there, the pictures that Paul had in mind as he was writing. But one that is pretty obvious is this image of standing, in which we stand. And so I want this moment, as we are obviously standing, to act as a visual aid memoir, a visual way of remembering, a hook, a thing that's going to stick in our minds about what Paul is saying. We are standing. And so as we come to God's Word, let us pray. Oh Lord, would you um, show us more and more of who you are as we study your Word? We've prayed, we've petitioned you, we've confessed our sins, we've sung together profound prayers, beautiful music, we've listened to this moving um, solo, and now we stand in your presence with your word. Would you by your spirit, the sword of the spirit is the word of God, by your Spirit, enlighten our minds and our hearts to see you more for who you truly are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do please sit down. Now, a a topic like uh, joy, rejoicing, in the hope of the glory of God. A a topic like joy, on its surface, seems quite an easy thing to talk about from a pulpit. Everyone wants to feel more happy, so if you talk about joy, people are going to like that. Uh, Actually, it's not always the case that such things work in that sort of way. For instance, I sometimes will joke with Rochelle. For those of you who don't know, my wife's name is Rochelle. I'll I'll joke with her that... um, One of the topics that I least like to talk about from God's Word, as I exposit that, is actually 
love, which seems so counterintuitive. You know, you're speaking about God's love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What could be better? But actually, when you preach about love, quite often what will happen is someone who feels very loveless, and perhaps they've had a broken romance or they, something is going on, they'll come up to you and speak in a rather loveless way. I haven't had quite the same experience with joy, but there is a similar kind of thing, not in the way that someone will speak to me afterwards, I'll be hiding in a corner so it doesn't happen, but joy and the way we, f- we, we tend to interpret joy in terms of how we feel. And all of us, because we're human beings in a physical body living in a world, are influenced by circumstances, by the weather. It's cold outside, by the way. Um, I came across this quotation from T.S. Eliot this week. He said, April is the cruelest month. And I thought to myself, well, that's because he was never in Chicago in January. <laughs> now, there are some people because uh, they're very, they're, they're temperaments, they're, they're very even-keeled temperament, the way they are made in their personality. Some people are not phased by winter. They do not suffer when the days are shorter and the nights are colder. And they're generally speaking the sort of people who are glass is half full type. They smile over their cornflakes and they are chipper in the morning. And so we look at a subject like this. We know such people, all of us. We look at a subject like this and we think, Is that what it is saying? Not everyone does have such a temperament. Many people do. Not everyone does. Is this about circumstances or personality or what we feel or the way that we are wired or is it about something bigger and better? See, this verse here is something that everyone who is a Christian, has access to this kind of joy about which this verse speaks. Through him, Paul says, not through personality or temperament or circumstances or the weather, through him, that is Jesus Christ, We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me, what I want to do this morning is the following. I want to tell you what I think this verse means. Then I want to tell you why I think it means that. And then together, I want us to consider how it applies to our lives. So first, what I think this verse means is as follows. We rejoice with brave courage, courageous confidence. There are many different pictures here, and they evoke something like that, as we will see, I trust. We rejoice with brave courage, courageous confidence, 
because through Christ, through him, through Christ, we are now established forever in a realm of grace and glory. Let me say that again. We rejoice with brave courage because through Christ, we are now established forever in a realm of grace and glory. In other words, what we are looking at this morning is something that beats not just the blues, but beats the circumstances of our lives and the news that we read about in Paris and anywhere else. So I'm going to explain why I think it means that, and then I will apply it. First reason why I think it means this is because of the context of this verse. You should always study a verse in context. And you'll remember uh, from last week, if you were here, that this chapter 5 is the beginning of a new section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, chapter 5 comes after chapters 1 to 4. You, you knew you were going to learn something new this morning. And chapters 1 to 4 are Paul's explanation, articulation, proof of his doctrine of justification by faith. That's what it's called, the doctrine of justification by faith, one of the pillar teachings of the Christian church, the article that is the standing or falling of the Christian church. That is what Paul has been proving as true in chapters 1 to 4. What is that teaching? That teaching is that, he has argued, we are all sinners. In other words, when we say we're all sinners, this isn't a make someone feel bad moment. What Paul is saying is that this teaching is the diagnosis of the human condition. It explains what happened in Paris. It explains our sense of being out of ease with ourselves and with other people and with life. It explains the worst of human behavior and even the best. If you look downtown Chicago and you go, go down there one day and you see these massive skyscrapers, extraordinary achievements. And yet, of course, we all know that there's hubris and whose skyscraper is bigger than the other person's, you know. So something about the way we're wired is out of kilter. We're all sinners, Paul says. Not just people who didn't grow up in a Christian home, but everyone. Every single one of us. Well, if that's the case, Paul's be arguing, then given that God is a holy and just God, we are therefore under the wrath of God, which is not good news. But then he carries on his argument. God, who is just and holy, is also loving. And so God has sent Jesus, his son, to atone for our sins at the cross through his blood. So the, the cross is the expression both of God's justice and of his love. And they met perfectly in that moment of profound mercy. So, he says, if that is what God has done, if we believe in Jesus, believe not as notional acceptance of the truth, there is an intellectual, very important intellectual component to Christianity, but it's far more than that. Not just notional acceptance of the truth, 
but a closing with Jesus, a commitment to Jesus. If we believe in him, then, Paul says, we are right before God. We have um, what theologians call alien righteousness. That doesn't mean they've been watching Men in Black 3. It means that we have a righteousness that is not inherently ours. It is Jesus's, and yet through trust, God reckons Christ's righteousness to us. And so we're not just forgiven, we are righteous with the righteousness of Christ. That's his message in chapters 1 to 4, that he's proven. And he summarizes, as we saw last week, in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, a past tense, justified, an aorist, in fact, denoting completed action, something that has been done, finished, since that is the case, something follows. What follows? Well, then is this whole new section from chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 8. And in this section, Paul is basically arguing that because of justification by faith, which I've now just re-explained, that Paul proves in chapters 1 to 4, because of that, we therefore who have put our trust in Jesus, our relationship with God is assured, certain, fixed. He argues this throughout chapters 5 to 8, answers various objections, particularly in chapters 6 and 7. And then he comes to his great conclusion where he says, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that phrase, in or through Christ Jesus our Lord, is a little hook to indicate that chapters 5 to 8 are one section. It appears at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 11. It's the end of each of the subsections of chapter 6 and 7. It's right at the end of chapter 8. In Christ Jesus our Lord, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. In other words, it is fixed, it is certain. And as we saw last week, therefore we have not the peace of God, which is what Philippians chapter 4 talks about, that is freedom from anxiety and the worries of life, a very important thing that can be ours as we cast our burdens upon Jesus, but not the peace of God, not an emotional or internal peace, but a peace with God. That is, as Paul explains it at the end of this subsection in verse 11, reconciliation. Our peace with God is now fixed and certain and definite. We are reconciled to God. And now we come to verse 2. And this is all explaining why I think this verse means what I said uh, at the start that it means. And in verse 2, Paul tells us there's another part of this certain assured state in which we who believe in Jesus have for sure. And he says, through him, that is through Jesus Christ, We have also obtained, another thing, we have also obtained access by faith. Now the phrase, if you have an ESV Bible or many modern translations will have the same, has a footnote that indicates that the phrase by faith is not in some versions of uh, the manuscripts. It makes no difference whether Paul uh, actually wrote uh, by faith or not, because he has said a number of different times that it is through faith. So it makes no difference to the meaning. 
If you wish to follow up on the historical reliability of the Bible, there are those two papers that I produced for us to explain the historical reliability of the Bible, and that that Newsweek article that took place over Christmas is plain wrong. And so you can follow that up afterwards. But here, in the context of this theme of the fixed, certain, assured state, having been justified by faith, he now says, through him, that is Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access. Now, this access is a very important word. It's used only three, and here's one of these big pictures that, are, that is in the passage. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Here, in Ephesians 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 12. Let me read those for you, and then you'll get a sense of what one renowned biblical scholar called that this word has a certain touch of formality. He didn't mean formality, wearing a suit, or being prim and proper and stiff. You'll see what he meant in a moment. Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Then Ephesians 3, verse 12. In him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And this note of formality, as this scholar put it, to the word, has a picture in it. Here is the picture. The picture is of someone being introduced or presented at a king's court. could have also had the picture of gaining access to a religious temple as well, because in ancient culture, often religious temple and king's court kind of went together. Either way, there is a picture here that is something like this, access to the king's court. I want you to imagine with me. Someone is a beggar on a street. They are begging for their food. Living out their existence that way. And uh, they're doing so outside a palace, massive palace with gold and impressive structure. And the rich and the wealthy and the celebrities and the royalty drive by and they have access into the court of the king, but the beggar does not, of course. Now, how do you gain access? It's not something you can do on your own. You have to be presented at court. You cannot just march in. You have to have someone introduce you in order for you to have access. So here's this beggar. And the beggar is now given a whole new set of robes and clothes and washed and put on courtly attire. And someone who does have the privilege of access into the king's court leads him in and makes an introduction, a presentation to the king. This person now has access through this other person. This person is now in the courts. They have gone in. They're now entered into the courtly realm. They have gained access. They have been introduced, presented at court. Now note it's something that has taken place. This has been obtained by Jesus Christ. He has made the introduction. Having been justified by faith, were therefore introduced, presented at the court of God himself. We are now in 
the court. We're in the inner circle. That's the picture here. Now, what have we obtained access into? Paul says, into this grace. And it's a somewhat unusual use of the word grace. But here it means a realm of grace. So Paul is now using it as a sphere, a place, a realm. This court that we have, been obtained, we have obtained access, we have obtained access through Jesus Christ, is all something that he has done, justification by faith. This realm of grace, it is all now a place, a realm. Paul uh, makes this use of the word clear when later in the section, Romans 5 to 8, that section all about the certain fixed assurance that we have through faith in Christ. He says, Romans 6 verse 14, we are no longer under law, we are now under grace. Same idea. We have this new realm, this new master, this new place, this new court into which we have gained access, and it is the realm of grace. In other words, we are now through Christ and faith in him in a place of boundless and bountiful blessing, opportunity, privilege, honor, a realm of grace. It seems a bit too good to be true. And so we will naturally wonder whether it's possible that we could fall out of grace again. And so Paul makes sure that we understand that that is not possible. This is the grace, he says, in which, here's the image we started with, in which we stand. In other words, he is emphasizing what we could have already perceived to be true because we have been justified by faith as a finished act, but he's emphasizing it by picturing it for us as standing in this palace. The word actually has a sense of fixed or established or permanent. We are standing. There's confidence in it. We're not groveling. One ancient commentator said that we're standing because we used to be flat on the floor. There's something of that to it. So here's this beggar. He has new palatial garments on him, a nice new set of clothes. He's at the court of the king. And he's not hiding in a corner. He's not groveling. He's not worried that he's about to be kicked out at any moment if he should say a wrong word or do a wrong thing. Forget his courtly manners. No. He is standing. Secure, confident, certain, assured. So that is where we are through Christ, in this realm of grace into which we have been introduced, a realm of blessing and opportunity. We have access to God. A realm in which we do not grovel, but we stand confident, certain, as the book of Hebrews put it. We now approach the throne of grace with boldness. And then, so Paul tells us, that because of this new realm in which we are fixed as those who believe in Jesus, we Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He 
each of these words is so important to understand, to fill out the picture of what Paul is saying, and I want you to grasp them. We rejoice is actually the same word translated earlier in Romans as boast. So Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, that boasting is excluded. That is, boasting is not possible anymore. Why? Because no one can keep the law. No one can do everything that God wants as expressed in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Perhaps you haven't killed someone, but you've hated. Perhaps you haven't committed adultery, but you have in your heart. No one but no one has kept this law. And therefore, because we're only saved by Jesus through faith, we have nothing to boast about. Nothing. But now, he says, we do boast. It's actually a very important word, this boasting word to Paul. There are whole books written about it. Something he thought about a lot and wrote about a lot in the Bible. He says that we have nothing to boast about in ourselves, but when we are in Christ, we do have something to boast about. We now are in the court. We are fixed standing in the realm of grace. Now we do boast. Now, it doesn't mean bragging about what you have done. That kind of boasting is excluded. This kind of boasting here means a rejoicing confidence. It has a sense of brave declaration, a courageous, audacious declaration that is not just determined but has joy throughout it. Wow, this is amazing that I am here. It's exuberant, bravely telling others, bravely declaring a rejoicing confidence. That sort of boasting because of what God has done in Christ and because of where we are now in Christ, in the courts of the King, in the realm of grace. Now, for some reason, this whole idea has been undertaught in Christian circles for a long time. And here's what that means. It means that if you are not yet a Christian, perhaps that's you here this morning, there are always people who are, we trust coming to college church to find out more about Jesus. They want to know what the source textbook says, so we study the Bible. And they look around at Christianity, not us here, but in general, and everyone looks so miserable. I had a friend once who used to joke about this and called, it, called Christian joy deep joy. Deep joy. Deep, deep joy, so deep you cannot discover it anywhere. You know, this is not Eeyore spirituality. You know, it's not so bad. I mean, you know, everything's going wrong, but hey, I've got Jesus, I guess. We exclude one kind of boasting. But there is a rejoicing confidence, an audacious, courageous, brave joy that we have, which is exceedingly exuberant, far beyond anything anyone else in the whole universe can boast about. Sounds good? What is that? Paul says we're rejoicing in hope. 
Now, as always, the word in the Bible, uh, hope, does not mean I hope so. I hope it's going to turn out okay. No, this word in the Bible means something certain about the future. The hope of God is what will definitely come about because of what God has done in Christ. Our future hope is not uncertain. It is definite. And so to rejoice in hope is not to hope that things will turn out for the best. It is to know for sure that we have this eternal life of which we are now a part because we are standing in the realm of grace. Fixed, established. But more. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, this is not well understood. And the more I thought about it this week, the more important it has seemed to me that we understand it. It seemed to be what thrilled Paul and drove him. He had seen the glory of God when he was converted on the road to Damascus. There he was, going in one direction, persecuting the Christian church, dramatically converted. He had a vision of Jesus' glory, so brilliant that it was blinding. He returned to that again at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, saying, in view of his appearing, that is literally a vision of Jesus in view of his appearing that he will then again see him face to face as he had the glory of Jesus Paul says in Romans uh, that this glory is something that we as humans used to have but because we rebelled we lost it so Paul explains Romans 3 verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we used to have this glory in the garden, but because the Garden of Eden, but because of Adam's rebellion and because we have all rebelled, they go together, both those things. We have lost this glory of God and fallen short of it. Never put Adam's rebellion against our rebellion. They're always both taught in Scripture. But now in Christ, we have fallen short of it. All of us, we're all sinners. But now in Christ, we are going to have that glory again. Romans 8 verse 30, as he concludes, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this glory is something not only out there in God, but that's something that will happen to us. Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is something not only spiritual but physical. It will happen to our bodies. We will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of the eye and take on a glorious body. This is something that because of where we stand is going to happen. It is certain if we believe in Jesus. It is assured if we believe in Jesus. So Paul makes in his thinking and his logic this giant leap from justification to glorification. Justified, then glorified, Romans 8. And here at the beginning of this section, he has the same logic. This is not as a result of an ongoing process of gradual sanctification and becoming more like Jesus. Important as that is, that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and all the rest that we must do as Christians and as true born-again Christians will want to do. One of the signs of being a Christian is wanting to be more like Jesus. Yes, but our glorification is now certain not because of our sanctification but because of our justification. 
Note that leap. Justification, glorification. We will be glorified. Once we see this, we can begin to understand why Jesus and Luke's gospel told his disciples after they'd been on a mission trip and seen lots of people converted and come back rejoicing. And Jesus said, don't rejoice about ministry success. Don't rejoice that we're a big church with people coming to know Jesus and learning about the Bible. Don't rejoice about that. What should I rejoice about, Jesus? We should rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Why? Because of this glory. This is not a vague spirit ether floating around in a cloud. This is being restored to the glory of God physically as well as spiritually. Not just about, you know, coming to church a lot. In our own bodies, having now true beauty, reflecting him with unveiled faces. And this is something certain, definite, assured. And this is something that is even beginning to take place now. A Christian, even if very weak, even if with many sins that need to be repented of, even with a broken body and suffering, having a jar of clay, as Paul described it, still has inside jewels of glory being prepared right now forever. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As Wesley put it in his famous hymn, we are changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. And none of this, none of it. Not one little bit is to do with personality, the weather, temperament, circumstances, suffering. We'll get to that next week. None of it has to do with what we've done or what we are doing. It is all through Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have obtained access. We have been introduced to the court. We are now fixed. We Stand, we are established in the realm of grace, a place of boundless blessing and opportunity. We have access to this God freely and boldly. We may approach the throne of grace. We don't grovel, we don't crawl around on our hands and knees. We stand, we are fixed, we are secure, we're in the realm of grace, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we have accessed all the bounty of heaven's glory. We have, as the Apostle Peter puts it, that all things that pertain to life and godliness are already there for us. We have this extraordinary opportunity as children of the king, heirs of the whole universe in the king's court. And so we rejoice confidently. We look around and say, wow, am I really here? So all that is why I think this verse means we rejoice with brave courage, courageous confidence, audaciousness, audacity, 
boldness, boasting. Because through Christ, we are now established forever in a realm of grace and glory. That's what I think it means. That's why I think it means that. Let's then apply it to all of our lives, mine included. If this is the case, if this is what Paul is saying, why is it that sometimes some of us do not rejoice? And how are we to rejoice? It seems to me there are two overall categories why people do categories, two overall categories why people do not rejoice. Here they are. Some people think this kind of boasting is a wrong thing to do at any time, rejoicing confidently. Perhaps they think it sounds too much like bragging. They think we should be wary of any kind of confident rejoicing. They don't want to brag, so they're not sure they can rejoice confidently. Other people think it's the wrong thing to do because it's a little bit risky. They don't want to rejoice confidently because they think if they do, someone will shoot them down. They're wary of what Australians call the tall poppy syndrome. That is, they want to keep their heads down, stay below the parapet, not put their heads up and rejoice confidently in case someone cuts down the tall poppy. And so they don't rejoice confidently. They try to be hidden. Some people just think that uh, boasting, even this sense of rejoicing confidently, not bragging, this sense of it, is the wrong thing because in any case, it's just not proper. It is not appropriate. It is not what we do. It feels too forward. It's uncomfortable for them to rejoice confidently. So it seems to be that first category, some people don't rejoice confidently because they think any kind of boasting is the wrong thing, but other people don't boast, don't rejoice in this way with confidence, audacious bravery, because they're actually boasting in the wrong thing already. That is some version of themselves. In other words, it is pride that is the enemy of joy. Of course, they are happy to boast, but they're boasting about the wrong thing, so they don't actually have this rejoicing confidently. Uh, It's a little bit like ashes in their mouths. Some boast in their own moral goodness. This was common at Paul's time. He spent a long time trying to exclude that kind of boasting among the religious Old Testament law kind of people. It is still common today. Such a person, these kind of people, they live a good life, and they congratulate themselves about it. Well done. But still they don't have this kind of joy. Why? Because no one actually lives a good enough life. Some people, of course, boast in their own sin. They sin bravely. But sin is its own reward, and while the devil offers pleasure, he does not create pleasure, and therefore his pleasures are only a temporary and disillusioning, pale imitation of the real thing. At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. And so it's disappointing. It's not real confident joy. Some people don't have this rejoicing confidence because they're boasting in their own nation or country. Every nation and country I've lived in has had this common tendency. It was common among the Jews of Paul's day. It's still common among most nations of the world. 
these kind of people are very pleased about their own nation, and they congratulate themselves. Well done, I was born here, I'm a citizen of this country. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But such rejoicing confidence inevitably disappoints because no nation is perfect. Some people don't have this rejoicing confidence because they boast in their own gifting or abilities. They're very confident in themselves. They're doing very well, and they congratulate themselves on how well their career is going. But this kind of confidence, however gifted you are, is always going to disappoint because however well you do in life, there will always be someone who does even better. And so it will lead to frustration, not true rejoicing confidence. So those are the two categories why I think people don't rejoice. How are we to have this joyful confidence? It comes down to realizing, believing, accepting, reveling in the truth of what Paul is saying. We rejoice with brave courage, courageous confidence, audacity, boast. Because through Christ, we are now established forever in a realm of grace and glory. What does that mean? It means these simple four things. One, it means we boast in Jesus. You, my friend, may never have experienced what I'm talking about because you have never truly closed with Jesus. And I don't care how many Bible studies you've been to and how good you are at Bible trivia. You need to boast in Jesus. Can you say that? Can you say that Jesus alone is your boast? That is the source for joy. Two, it means we boast in Jesus by moving from hesitant praying to confident praying. There are massive implications here for our prayer life as a church. How are we praying at home and as a church? Are we praying like impoverished beggars with no right to talk to God? Are we praying like children of a heavenly Father whose relationship with Him is fixed and certain, who stand in the realm of grace and have all the blessings of heaven in front of us? That is, do we pray freely to a Father in heaven with confidence or do we grovel? Do we pray like impoverished beggars before a distant deity or like children of the heavenly Father? Massive implications for prayer. Then three, we boast in Jesus by moving. Massive implications for how we do worship as a church at home, in our own personal private lives, how we follow Jesus in practical obedience, and as we gather together. All this is worship. By moving from worship as distant performance to worship as gospel participation. That is, we worship now as those who have been introduced into the realm of grace, into this grace in which we stand. Rejoicing confidently in the hope of the glory of God. Who welcomed you this morning to church? Did you get a warm handshake? I hope so. Even if you did not, and even if you did, you are welcomed if you believe in Jesus, and you are invited now to believe in Jesus if you do not. You are welcomed and invited and introduced and presented by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Massive implications for how we worship. We are in this realm of grace now. We are free. 
For we boast in Jesus by moving from heads down religion. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, I follow Jesus, and it's really, really a very good thing, I think. Maybe. To heads up Christianity. Rejoicing confidently. For we rejoice with brave courage, audacious confidence, because through Christ, we are now established forever in a realm of grace and glory. Let us pray.